everyone who's in the room at the moment is in. So hello everybody and welcome to our Wednesday seminar at the Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism. Um, I'm Mira Salvram, Director of the Journalist Fellowship Programme. We have been running these seminars for well over 10 years and the idea is to bring people to Oxford on a Wednesday afternoon to talk about the challenges facing journalism. At the moment we can't bring people to Oxford but I'm really delighted to say we can still bring people to our screens to talk and because we haven't got the limitations of geography we've been able to form, be far more global in our choice of speakers and on that note I'm really delighted that Clara Jimenez Cruz from Maldita.es could join us today. She is the founder, co-founder of one of the best most fun innovative effective fact-checking sites I've ever seen. It's one that has built a whole new relationship with readers, built on an exchange of trust and expertise, and is incredibly well respected in the Spanish and Latin American speaking, Spanish speaking world in Europe and Latin America. And I think there's a huge amount that can, we, that can be learned um, from by their organization for fact checkers worldwide. We'll stick to the usual format. So Clara will take the floor and present, and then we will take questions via our chat function. So if you have any questions all the way through, please type them into the chat and I'll put them to Clara at the end. Thank you. And also please note, everything will stay on the record today as well. Thank you, Clara. Thank you very much for the presentation and for your kind words. Um, I'm very, very happy to be here, even if it's only screenway and I didn't have the pleasure to travel to Oxford. But I hope that uh, some of the insights I can give you around uh, Maldita and how we relate to our audiences and how we've been fact-checking the pandemic are useful to you and please feel free to ask any kind of question to me. This is on the record and I'm usually answering all questions even if they're on or off the record. So, hmm, this is going to be interesting. Here. Um, for a start, uh, Maldita is a Spanish fact-checking organization. We also do Transparency and Data Journalism. We are, have a non-for-profit model, uh, model. We do what's been called lately engaged journalism, which is basically uh, having a community approach and strategy and talking to our audiences all the time and building a Maldita for them and from them. And that's why in the end, we ended up with a membership model. I need to explain some of the things of how Maldita has grown as an organization and probably how me and my co-founder Julio Montes have grown as journalists in order for you to understand what took us all this way to how we are fact-checking the pandemic. Um, first thing I need to tell you is that Maldita is divided into verticals or niche projects. We are aware that not everyone that is interested in data journalism will have an interest in science or in technology or in fact checking and debunking. So we've divided each part of our project into uh, different verticals that can be consumed isolated or as a whole. Maldito Bulo is our debunking um, project. It's where it's the most well-known one and we basically fact check social media and traditional media uh, from crowdsourcing our, our audience. Maldito Dato is our political fact checking and data and transparency project. Uh, it's, it's not as fun as Maldito Bulo probably in the way it talks to the audience, but we've been doing 
some important stuff uh, around uh, transparency and data journalism. And we do live fact checking on, for example, um, elect electoral debates on national TV and those sort of stuff. We have a very good team on that side. Maldita Meroteca was the first project we built in 2014. And it was dedicated to talk, uh, to point out political flip-flopping. Um, when a politician contradicted himself, we would take out our Twitter account, which is how we started, and tell him that in the past he said a different thing. Maldita Ciencia is sort of a spin-off of Maldito Bulo. It's our fact-checking and debunking project dedicated to science and health. When we started, we realized pretty quickly that there was a lot of misinformation around science and health, and we thought that we needed to address it uh, specifically, and that we actually needed a specialized journalist in order to solve those sort of questions, and that has come very much at hand throughout the pandemic. And Malita Tecnología is our new, just newest project, and it's dedicated to explaining technology to the uh, regular citizen on the street to explain to them how cookies affect them, uh, how personal data is shared, why do they see the ads they see uh, when they go on Instagram, all those sort of things that we think are needed right now because in order to be able to keep on living um, in, in this democracy and making uh, choices with all the information in hand, you actually need to understand how technology works. And the other two projects, Maldita Migración and Maldito Feminismo, um, are two projects that we do with civil society. We do them with two NGOs and we basically focus on misinformation around specific topics, in this case, migration and gen gender. Gender, sorry. Gender. Yeah, I've, I'm trying my best with my English. I'm sorry if there's something that it's not well understood. Um, well, before you ask me, maldita in English means damned. Um, I know it's kind of hard to understand why we chose that name in English, but let's say that maldita in Spanish is not a curse word and it doesn't sound so bad. And it actually works pretty well to define the kind of work that we do in um, being vigilante of power and public discourse to get their facts and figures right. And that's my cell phone. Sorry for that. Um, to, to well understand how we relate with our community, uh, I need to go back to 2011. I don't know if you remember this image. This is the central square of Madrid when it got uh, floated by people that slept there for over a month demanding that our democratic system talked more and better with their citizens. I was 20 years old when uh, the 15M, which is uh, what is shown there, happened and I was already working at a national TV station. I was an intern there and I remember telling my editors repeatedly that something was going to happen on that afternoon of the 15th of May in the main square of Madrid and they didn't pay attention. I knew that something was going to happen because I was listening. I was paying attention with, with what was going on on social media and I was trying to relate to our audience in a different way. Obviously a national TV has no 
way of talking constantly to their audiences, but they were not listening at all. And we actually missed that piece of news because uh, we didn't send anyone to see it. Um, because of that relationship that I thought, and Julio Montes, who was uh, working at the same TV station, Julio Montes is my co-founder at that time. Um, because of that, a sense of needing to listen at a certain point when we started building our own journalistic projects, we started listening. And out of that, and out of uh, some data that we found in the Reuters Institute Digital News Report, like the consumption of on mobile and the information consumption on WhatsApp, um, we decided to set up Maldita the way we did. So one of the first conclusions that came to us when we started thinking about what we wanted to do, and, and this has proven right throughout the process, is that we need to stop what we call elite thinking. And I'll explain this a bit better. This is how a journalist's life looks like, right? We are all day on Twitter and we think that what is being spoken about on Twitter is the important stuff. In reality, when you start listening to citizens' conversations, it looks nothing like this. It looks much more like this. There is an upper conversation in which journalists, politicians, and informed citizens are, and the translation of that for Spain is basically Twitter. And then there's the rest of the conversation in which there are a lot of citizens that do not relate with the upper conversation and that are, that are talking about different stuff. When we started listening to the lower conversation, to the rest of the conversation, we realized that there, were, there was a lot of misinformation going around, especially uh, through WhatsApp, but mostly on, on any social media. And a big part of that misinformation was driving the conversation that citizens were having. And the questions they were asking around that misinformation were not being answered by journalists, because journalists were, weren't listening. Um, and what we realized is that if we wanted to do uh, the kind of journalism that we believed in, that was a public service and that answered the questions that people had and gave them the information to be able to make better decisions, we needed to answer whatever questions they had. Because some of those answers would bring them to the upper conversation and some of those answers would make them stay in Maldita and engage with us and listen to the other important stuff that we deemed important as journalists. And some of those questions are things that you cannot even imagine and we're not especially proud of having had to answer, but we answer them. For example, a mosquito can leave you pregnant with just one bite. This was one of the pieces of misinformation that we came across in the first year doing Maldita that was asked to us several times and that was being believed and we had to debunk it. I know that as a journalist this is not the, the piece of work I'm most proud of but I think it was important for the people that were actually believing that a mosquito could leave you pregnant with just one bite to answer it because once you answer these kind of things people keep on coming to you for more information and for fact-checked information. The second uh, conclusion 
we we made um when after doing maldita for some while was that twitter is not the world or at least it isn't for spain in spain there are 4.4 million users on twitter and 30.5 million users on whatsapp so we realized that we needed to listen much more on whatsapp where that's where the real conversation was taking place and not so much on twitter the third conclusion we got out of looking at those numbers people consuming information through whatsapp and people consuming on mobile phones was that we needed to make formats that were useful for that kind of consumption so this is how our debunking looked at first when we were not well known and when we people didn't really trust us in any way because we were new to the business somehow right we started doing these very easy to consume formats that if you think about it, it's what people will dedicate time to know that something is wrong. They're not gonna read a 2000 word uh, article to understand why something is fake, but they will read this kind of thing. And there was another strategy behind this kind of format, which was to make the debunkings as viral as the hoax. And we obviously do not reach that virality every on every fact check, but we do on some. And it's it's worth trying at least. We basically use the same um, the same tools that the bad guys and the misinformers use to fight back. And this has played a, a role within our organization and also within other fact checking organizations after we started doing it because it's very clear you give them you give people all the facts they need uh to debunk a story and they understand it and they share it um the the fourth thing we learned out of uh fact checking and building an organization was that if you want to fight a battle you need an army and obviously there are many ways of fighting misinformation and we're probably thinking about technological ways uh, and about platforms uh, getting much more involved in the fight against, misin against misinformation. But I think there's one very important part that has to do with education, with media literacy, and with the population being aware that misinformation is a problem and that they need to fact check whatever they received and not believe it at first hand. So taking that into mind, we decided to put our community onto that job and by telling them uh what happened was that they started sharing in places we could not reach otherwise like their personal whatsapp conversations um our debunkings we encouraged that uh way of communicating and we told them that we tell them uh up to date that that if someone sends them something that is false they need to reply they need to give them the facts they need to uh, share with, uh, with uh, their friends and family our WhatsApp number so that they can report whatever misinformation they receive before sharing it. And this has paid um, back in numbers and I'll, I'll get there in a minute. When we started uh, doing this kind of strategy with our community, we needed to give them a name. We call them Malditas and Malditos. And at a certain point, we realized that they 
they were engaging with us by sending us whatever misinformation they found on, on their personal conversations, which was and, and is extremely valuable because um, one thing we've learned is that misinformation for Spain, it starts first on WhatsApp and then it goes to the rest of the social media. So if we don't have our community reporting whatever misinformation pieces are going around, we are not able to track them um, on an easy way and quickly enough as to fact check it and stop the misinformation going around. Um, and, and secondly, because they take us to places that we could have never imagined. And these are examples of that. But then we realized that we could engage with them more and that they could be of use for this battle more. And that's when we created what we call our superpowers. Yes, everything is kind of cheeky in Maldita. <laughs> but I think that's part of uh, what we do and the way we've chosen to do it and, and it's proven to work. So what are the superpowers? We basically ask our Malditas and Malditos if they want to donate their expertise. Um, we turn them into superheroes fighting misinformation in this battle. This has given us many important things. First of all, new sources of expertise. Um, we, we, we get uh, new sources of epidemiologists every day, which are not so easy to find in Spain right now because they're all very busy. But some of them donate their expertise and their time to us. Um, we get handy sources that we've never imagined we'd need. And uh, I want to set an example of this so that you can understand what type of expertise this can be. It can be your profession, but it can be other things. For example, it can be that you're very good at um, working with wood. And for example, we didn't have a door for a very long time in our office, and then we got one. Or it could be that I am. Um, you might not think that you have a PhD or whatever and, and that your job is not valuable, but we've uh, been in situations in which we needed people, for example, that worked in the security of control of an airport and that could explain to us how the machine that tests for drugs works. That, that's, for example, a superpower we've used lately. If you speak a bit of Chinese or a bit of Russian and you can actually identify uh, the languages when spoken, that's good enough for us. We will pay a translator afterwards if we need it, but we sometimes need to identify what's the language being spoken on a video. Um, it brings new voices and diversity to the conversation. I don't know if this happens in your countries, but I'm guessing it does. Um, there are more than five epidemiologists in the country, but the same five appear in all media. There are more than five political experts, but we're always talking to the same ones because they're the ones we know, the ones every journalist has the cell phone for, the ones that have the time to dedicate to media because that's their focus of work. Well, there are many more and we can make the conversation much more diverse uh, through something like our expert superpowers. And then, we've given our community a purpose and that works both ways because they have a purpose they engage better with us and they they want to fight the battle more and they make our job easier because instead of having to call 
seven medical schools to find the doctor that will answer the question that you need answered, you have a database in which you can look it up. And it's people that are already willing to contribute to your work. And these are some examples of what our malditas and malditas and their superpowers can do. Juan and Guido are two doctors. Um, they are actual doctors and they're very good at drawing comics, but they don't know what people need to know, which are the questions that people are having. And we do. So we partner with them. They make these comics for us for free and we give them the topics that are being asked by our community. This makes our job easier and beautiful also. These are another two examples. Gemma del Caño is an expert in uh, nutrition and Eduardo Malmierca is a doctor and they're two malditos that decided that they wanted to help us with their expertise and they either came over and did a video with Rocío from Maldita Ciencia or they even, in the case of Eduardo, did a video themselves at home, they sent it to us and we did the editing to be able to publish it, explaining what was happening with Nolotil, which is a, a, a medicine in Spain. Um, well, I think it's a medicine everywhere, right? Um, so these are very great contributions that uh, came very much at hand, but there are many, many others. How many? Well, up to today, 1,800 superpowers have been registered in our CRM. We built it out of the accelerator that the European Journalism Center created. Um, we had to do a very specific CRM, so we built it from scratch uh, because we needed to be able to register all these superpowers and um, cross the different information amongst the database to actually find the person we were looking for. This is the, like, we did this less than a year ago. And so this is the starting point. One of the things we ask our community, for example, is where do they work? And this is because we thought, maybe not today, but in the future, we're gonna be researching something that happened in a company. And we're gonna need sources there. And the easiest way to find those sources is knowing where our malditos live. We have over, I think right now is over 38,000 malditos registered. Not all of them have put their superpowers to use, but maybe at some point they do. And that's when we will be able to do all those research stories once we have that information. Um, all this that I just told you ends up in three things that I think are unique. Um, to, to Maldita in itself. Um, the way we talk to our Malditos, the format and tone we use, and I'll be setting some examples of that. The channels we use to talk to them, um, we're very excited because we just created a chatbot on WhatsApp that it's working extremely well. So <laughs> we took a lot of uh, pressure from our backs. And the topics we choose to to talk about, which are crowdsourced. So it's not really an editorial choice that we make, but uh, something that is dictaminated by, why by what people need and are, are asking about. Um, we're going into the last part of the presentation and uh, this is mostly in relation to the pandemic. Our WhatsApp service used to have 250 daily queries 
it was a WhatsApp business uh, account and we answered each of them manually. Uh, well, our reporter had to ask, answer them, right? When the pandemic started, those queries went up to 2000. So we were totally unable to answer each of them. Um, so we partnered with COVID Warriors, which are um, a group of developers that wanted to put their expertise at the service of solution for, solutions for the pandemic. And uh, they've built in three weeks out of our API, uh, WhatsApp chatbot that answers automatically uh, to, to whatever queries you, you may have around uh, contents or fact checks. This, if I'm not mistaken, is the fifth WhatsApp chatbot is the first one in Spain and it's working well. So if you want to give it a look, buloscoronavirus.es, you can find it there. Um, other things that have happened because of the strategy we've driven and, the, um, and what we've been doing throughout the pandemic. We went from 2 million unique users, which is our average uh, number, to 9.7 million in March and 8 million in April. Actually, <laughs> we had to um, rebuild our servers because they kept on falling down because of uh, we were having too many visitors, visitors that we didn't expect. Why did this happen? Well, one of the things that we've noticed, and I'm sure you have too, is that misinformation has risen a lot throughout the pandemic, and a lot of people were looking for answers that that uh, traditional media weren't answering because they weren't getting the questions. We did, and that's how we answered 450 questions and 550 fact checks out of misinformation that was going around um, WhatsApp, social media, etc. There are some uh, themes that have varied along the way. On the first half of the, well, I, I guess of the Spanish lockdown, so um, probably uh, half March and half April, most of the misinformation and the questions we were getting were around prevention, cures, and understanding the virus. And I think they were in answer to the um, how, how afraid people were of something they, they weren't able to understand because we still don't have enough data around the virus, right? Um, while people got to, to feel more comfortable in living with the pandemic and to understand uh, the measures they had to take and, and to, to have every clear piece of information they needed, because everyone in every uh, media medium was talking about that. Um, the misinformation and the questions changed. We started getting a lot of legal questions around um, the lockdown here in Spain, and we saw a huge rise in political misinformation. And this is something that has not only happened in Spain, um, We've, uh, I've been talking to other fact checkers around the world, and at least in the case of the USA and Brazil, they've noticed exactly the same change in themes around uh, the misinformation around the pandemic. Everything started as being health and science, 
and then it's turning much more political. And I think that answers to three polarized countries that are having, they either have or, or um, governments that, that can fall at any moment like Spain or an election in the near future like the US. <clears throat> Some of the other things we've been doing um, throughout the pandemic, we've been creating these images to viralize them and, and take them further than where our regular um, article would go. We're doing a daily WhatsApp audio that we send to all our community and it's working very well. We've, there's no way of measuring that, right? But we've got a lot of feedback from people that didn't know us and that at some point received the audio and from that they started going into Maldita and fact-checking information. And we've been doing basically in different formats Q&As. We did a Q&A in partnership with Twitter. Well, we're doing all those sorts of things all the time because what we've discovered is that people, well, uh, value when you answer their questions, I guess. And probably because our, our government's communication is not being the best either. We have a, we're doing the unlockdown newsletter where we tell, I don't know if you know that in Spain, we are going out of lockdown in different phases on each region. So we, because of the big database we have of all of our malditas and malditos, we know where they live and we send, we can send them a newsletter telling them which uh, unlockdown phase they're going into. And we've done some alliances, the Coronavirus Alliance. I know Cristina Tardaguila was here some time ago and I guess she told you about that, how all the fact checkers around the world that belong to the ISDN are working together building a database that if there are any scholars on the, on the call, I'm sure they can use at some point. We did an alliance with the uh, Latin American Spanish speaking countries called Latam Chequea. We are working with them and sharing knowledge uh, with all the fact checks we already have done in Spain so that they can replicate them in Latin America because around the pandemic, most misinformation looks alike in each country. And we have a European alliance in which Correctif from Germany, Vallela Politica from Italy, and AFP from France are in a project with Full Fact from the UK and Maldita. We, uh, together with Full Fact, are leading that project, and you will be seeing some of the reports we are building around the type of misinformation that is going around um, in the throughout the pandemic uh, with the financing of Google. And I'm about to finish. In the middle of this all, um, there was um whatsapp chain that was had a piece of misinformation about fact checkers we were getting censorship accusations because i don't know if, if you notice when whatsapp <coughs> turn <coughs> limited uh how many times you could forward a message that had been already forwarded before so someone in spain decided that what that measure that uh, whatsapp took in the whole world in Spain, it meant that uh, WhatsApp was not letting you uh, forward any messages that were critical with the government and that the fact checkers like Maldita were deciding whether they were or not critical with the government. 
we got these censorship accusations that started only on WhatsApp and that um, I think these, these are the different um, things that I think happen, but mostly it's, it's, we are in a very polarized country with political misinformation being steered on purpose and um, fact checkers are, are not welcome on that kind of environment, right? But this, what we thought that could end up on a WhatsApp chain, then got to parliament. Uh, we were called Gestapo by the third party in parliament, by Vox. Um, and they called us to, to attend parliament and explain how we do our work. Fortunately, uh, someone in, in, in what we call La Mesa del Congreso, who decides whether people go or not to parliament to explain whatever they're being asked about, decided that controlling journalism was not a very good idea for a democracy. Um, nevertheless, there is something that I think is important. Um, five days before this exact MP was sharing our fact checks, uh, her party leader has used our debunks and our fact checks in, con in Congress to defend himself. And even if Box says that we never fact check the government because we are aligned with them politically, um, from our last 10 fact checks, six have been to the government, uh, two to the second party in parliament, and one and one to the other two. Um, our reaction to this was that we answered publicly to all accusations. I wrote a Medium article basically stripping myself on the organization. We have nothing to hide, so why not full transparency? But we did have some backlashes within the audience. There was a good thing, which is um, paying members rose because they believed that the work we were doing was valuable and that the attacks were not. But there was also a withdrawal of elder members unless WhatsApp queries. And I think that's the people that have not so much faith or not such a big relation to Maldita that when they heard those kinds of accusations, they decided <coughs> they didn't want to look further. Um, currently, we are answering, we keep on answering all the questions around the pandemic. We are asking the institutions questions because I don't know if this happened in your countries, but in Spain, uh, the Transparency Act was suspended throughout the pandemic. So all of the questions that we've been asking government have not been answered. Um, and we are asking ourselves questions. How do we retrieve the lost people? Uh, after that communications crisis? How do we prevent a second wave of misinformation with a second wave of COVID? How can we make our work more impactful on distributors, basically platforms? Which ideas can we work upon to make platforms make um, misinformation spread less? We're working with other fact checkers around the world on that. Um, and then more practical questions that I don't know if some of you may have from your own newsrooms. How can people work from home at 40 degrees Madrid without air conditioning? How can we have social distancing in a small newsroom? How can a nonprofit organization that lives out of fundraising, philanthropy and grants survive in two years time with the economic crisis that's coming? Those are the kind of questions we're asking ourselves. And I'll leave it here. I think I took more time than I should, I'm sorry. It's brilliant. Thank you. You answered a lot of questions I wanted to ask. What really struck me listening to you speak is in our last digital news report where we 
survey audiences about what they value about news, <coughs> how many people said they didn't feel that the news they consume gives them context and is relevant to their lives. And it struck me very forcefully that a lot of what you're doing, both in terms of giving context and relevance, but also diversity of voices, is things that really newspapers and online publications and public sector broadcasters should be doing, independent media should be doing this, it should be journalism. One of the things that we discovered out of listening to the audience um, is that a lot of the topics that were covered by traditional media were not explained mm -hmm. enough, right? So if, if like the, the big political issue um, this week in Spain was about how much, how much more can, uh, or okay, which laws can the president implement in order to maintain the lockdown? And what traditional media are saying, this law or that law, and that's it, and they're not explaining how you put those laws in motion, what each of the laws comprehend, people get totally lost. We discovered that by answering those specific uh, practical questions somehow, we could get people from the lower conversation to the upper one because they were able to understand what was being talked about up there and they weren't before. Thank you. I'm going to cluster some questions and put a few together because there are so many and they're in groups. But um, if you talk a little bit about how you select which stories you you um, fact check and Kate Bartlett goes back to your wonderful early example of the mosquitoes can leave you pregnant. And how do you know, how do you judge that, judge that people actually believed that rather than just sharing it? And then Ignacio Escribano Ruiz asks, um, is there a tipping point? Do you have a kind of tipping point to debunk an information? And the kind of connected one with that, which is from Sinja Andy, one of our researchers is, how, what factors affect how many times your content is shared on social media? Or so are there certain types of content that are a lot more likely to be viral than others? And if so, which ones? So it's like, you know, which are, how do you select and then which are the most popular? Okay, so um, we, we, there are two, two things that we value uh, when selecting what we're going to fact check. Most of the time, except if it's like a very big story that ran on a national TV or things like that, that had a great impact by themselves. Otherwise, we only fact check um, content that, it's been, that has been reported to us by our community, right? And there are two things that we take into account when deciding from all the misinformation we're seeing which one we're gonna fact check first. One is um, peligrosity. Does that mean something in English or I just made up a word? Peligro Say that word again? Peligrosity. Um, no. <laughs> I like the sound of it. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. Ah. <laughs> like how dangerous it dangerous. is. Dangerous. Yeah, no. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Hopefully there was a Spanish speaker yeah. out there listening. So um, if something is very dangerous, and what, is, what do we consider dangerous? For example, there is a, a climate crisis or a... Um, or, or a fire in a region in Spain and suddenly someone says that uh, you cannot drink the water because it's been contaminated. We will be the first ones going out there and telling you, hey, this is not true, drink water, okay? That, those are the kinds of things we're talking about. Or, or if there's a terrorist attack and someone is pointed out some person that it's actually no proof that he's a terrorist, we will go out and say right away, no matter if that hasn't gone viral at all. The other one is how viral is something. And it's not an exact science, but we have different ways of, of measuring it. We built a tool um, last year, yeah, 
uh, in which we, we register how many times things are being asked by email, by Twitter, by WhatsApp, by whatever. And uh, we've made some measures <coughs> in which that, um, so it has a functionality in which it will tell you, this has been asked uh, this many times in the last uh, three hours and, and we will measure that to decide which one goes first. Mm -hmm. We do it through social media, email, etc. And we also have a search engine in which people can look at fact checks. And if the same word, video, uh, link or picture has been searched more than three times in one hour, it will send us a Slack alert and tell us, hey, this has been searched more than the rest of the regular content. So right. we know that someone is asking about it, right? Um, so that answers to how do we choose the content we fact check. Um, and what's the most popular? Well, the thing is, <laughs> like right now, the most popular article we've ever performed, it's been around the pandemic. Um, and so I'm gonna take that out. Before that, the two most popular articles were not things that I'm extremely proud of, but that went extremely viral and that everyone was talking about them. One was an article about a sneaker that you could either see it, I'm sure you've had this story in the UK. You could either see it gray and green or pink and white, right? And there were allegations saying that, that depending if your uh, brain was more masculine or more feminine. Okay, so that's one of the most popular stories in Maldita. It was before the pandemic at least. I mean, I'm okay for those stories being the most read if afterwards we managed for people to stay and consume the political fact-checking, the explainers that would enable them to understand the current political situation, all those things. Do you find that they do? Yeah. That With they do? Our, 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 like the time that people have been spending on our webpage has grown um, every year since we started. And then because of the way in which we engage with uh, our community, so you can be a maldito um, and you don't need to pay anything. You just register, put your email down and you'll receive a, a weekly newsletter that has, I think it's uh 40 percent rate of opening i mean yeah. people yeah. tend to consume the whole thing not only the specifics thank you um i just want to ask one question from dorothy byrne who's a visiting fellow and she's she was head of news at channel four at channel four your your superheroes it's wonderful seeing a crm with superheroes as a category i think every newsroom should have that but i had the similar thought have you ever been fooled i know you don't rely on the superheroes exclusively for for the information they're given i know you fact you verify it and you cross check but have you ever been fooled by someone setting themselves up as a fake expert in that area um no we haven't at least we're not we don't know we have but it's true that whenever we use uh, the superheroes, we will use a source that we know mm -hmm. and, and that, um, that, we've, that has proven itself to be a valuable source and uh, the superheroes. And if there is, like, if our um, recognized expert says one thing and the superhero says the opposite, then we will probably go with this one and we'll find another one. Yeah, got you. Thank you. 
I've, I've got a couple, a cluster of questions, I think, from people who are also kind of working either with or for fact checkers. The first one is Sanita Jemberger, who I think is in Latvia, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, she asks one question about our research. The Reuters Institute had a poll yesterday which showed people are turning off news about COVID. And I'm seeing that, that people are actually just switching off, fact, you know, in monthly fact checking audience because they're bored. Mm. And then um, the second question is, um, and I think the answer to that is possibly no, from what your, your action is. And the second question is, when we become Facebook third party fact checkers, conspiracy theories, theories often go into overdrive and you get cyberbullying, you get accused of fact checkers, get accused of censorship. And how do you deal with that? You've talked about how it happens in parliament, but how do you also deal with it in society? And I think there's a, a second, question to that um, from, from Jay Nicey. Um, as a professional, as a member, a member of the advisory board of IFCN, how do you respond to the critics about the relationships and the dependency of both your media and of IFCN, the International Fact Checking Network, to platforms, especially to Google and Facebook, who provide some financial support there? And then a third question, which is also from um, Anna at Factograph, which is Croatia's fact checking operation. And do you, do you rely on your community of journalists to communicate when you've created specific job, job positions? And you know, how, how much does this pressure, how, how much pressure does such a huge community that you deal with create for you and your staff? You're asking your community to send in the, the, the misinformation, you're, you're re relying on them, but it's a lot of, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a big job to just manage these relationships. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it is, it is. <laughs> um okay so is people fed up with covid um i think that what we've been seeing lately is that um new topics are coming like the old topics before the pandemic are coming back like people are starting to ask questions not related to covid and that's news for probably this week i also think that right now and and this is probably not the same situation for every country but i think that in Spain, since we are starting our lockdown right now, and there are so many different um, rules and laws that we need to learn on how we need to drive ourselves in the following weeks, people are m mainly interested on that. Probably not, not so much reading the scientific part of it, but yes, the, the legal and political part of it. Um, 3PFC and how do we handle that? That's a good question. Um, well, I mean, I think we've been always very transparent about the work we do with Facebook. Um, we've always said that we get paid. We've actually asked Facebook to let us reveal how much we get paid because that's under an NDA. Um, our work hasn't changed at all. And, and we communicate that all the time and we explain which are the actions that Facebook takes when we fact check something. I mean, yeah, there's pressure, but to me, all these things are are answered with transparency and, and explaining things. And I mean, when Vox called us uh, to Parliament, our first reaction was when and where? Let us know. We're happy to talk about our work. I mean, we have nothing to hide. And that's why I um, wrote an extremely long medium article to explain that we have nothing to hide and that everything we do is public and has been published before in different uh, papers, interviews, and our webpage. 
So I, I think that's the way we deal with it. When we have an accusation of censorship, we come out and we explain it. And that has worked so far, maybe not for the whole population, but for a big chunk of it. Um, and then uh, the IFCN and the board and the money. <laughs> well, I think there have been different ways of, of approaching that. I think in the past, um, the director that was in seat decided not taking money from, from the platforms and letting that to the fact-checking organizations um, and, and keeping a very small IFCN. And that's one choice. Um, and now we have another director that has a very different approach. And his idea is that a strong, powerful IFCN is um, a better way of being able to pressure the tech companies, even when getting money from them, to do specific parts of it. I, I think both of them are good and both of them can work in different ways. The thing about the IFCN, and I think that's the key point, is that I'm on the advisory board, but I run my own organization and I don't get paid for being on the advisory board. I'm there because I believe that the IFCN is an important thing and that looking carefully and closely at the fact checkers around the world and deciding which ones are actually fact checkers and which ones are just made up organizations to do their thing is important. And that's how like being, taking importance in between, dividing between fact checkers and what it's not, but wants to portray themselves as, is an important job that I like doing. But at the same time, I'm controlling the IFCN because if the IFCN loses that capacity, where do the, the good fact checkers around the world go, right? So I think there's a balance between the people that belong to the board and the work we do for the board and why we're there and having our own organizations. Somehow we, we it's in our own interest to control um, the IFCN stuff well and to advise them well and that they don't get pressure and are not bought by the platform. Thank you. And then the third question, which was on community and how you manage the relations with your community. And a, and a kind of related question to that from Jarko Linton and one of our journalist fellows in Finland is how would you describe your core audience? So first of all, how would you describe this community if they're not part of the elite on Twitter? Who are they? And then you know, how do you manage this relationship and how, you know, how it, it, do you, does your staff have special support or special training? Because it must be quite a difficult thing yeah. mentally to you, do. You told me, you asked that question. I'm sorry, I, I forgot to answer. Um, so how do we define the community? Something that is always very hard to us. Um, we, we get this question, like whenever you're filling uh, an application, you'll get that question. How do you define your community? The thing is that there is not a, a definition that applies to the whole of our community. For example, the people that put money into the membership uh, model are probably the people that are on the higher level of the conversation, but they believe and they trust that the work we do is important, that, that we need to um, bring those facts and figures that have been fact-checked to the general public. The people that interact with us through our WhatsApp service, probably many of them 
have visited our, our webpage once or twice. They don't know that the malditos exist. They don't know that, okay? And then there's the people that are registered malditos but that don't contribute with either superpowers or money. And that, that's the big chunk. That, that's 38,000 people. I think those, um, what our data tells us is that they're mostly women, that they're between, if I remember correctly, between 35 and 50. Um, and, and that they value that we deliver the information directly to them. Like they value, for example, the newsletter a lot. That's really or, demographic. Yeah. Yeah, it is. We're, we're actually very proud. I know that there are a lot of newsrooms that fight to get women between their, their readers. And when we saw our numbers, we were like, this is cool. And I'm not sure we did anything specific like to get them there, but I, I think if there's a, this is my instinct is that if there's a kind of focus on health and information that is of direct relevance that to, to families, health, nutrition, breaking down yeah. what, you know, technology I mean, to the mothers of teenagers, you know, this could be that could a be, useful yeah. thing. Um, and a question from Gisela, which is, what do you think about integrating automatic tools to increase the amount of fact-checked information covered by Maldita? Um, I, I, I didn't answer how we manage the community. Um, no. I just realized that. Um, so we have a, a community coordinator, we call her. Okay. <laughs> um, and she's the one that, that has the conversations with the community, right? Like, so if someone sends an email and has a problem, she'll be the one that goes back. She's the one that designs uh, all the different onboarding processes we have to tell our users that we have these tools and that we have a, a WhatsApp number and that they can receive this newsletter and this and this. So, so she's the one that coordinates the message. Um, our, our chief editor is the one that, that uh, coordinates the way we talk somehow, mm -hmm. like superpowers and malditos and all that and the battle and the army. Um, but I don't think like the, the I'd say the biggest, um, most stressful part that I've seen within the newsroom is handling the WhatsApp. Uh, we've had some issues with that. Um, we actually did a session with a psychologist trying to understand how it might be affecting them. We have some, this again, I might be making up a word. We have some racialized people mm -hmm. within Racial, the newsroom, yeah? Ra racist, yeah. Racist. No, not racist, well. Um, and they were seeing a lot of misinformation around migration. Oh, people from minorities, yeah. Yeah, yeah. thank you. <laughs> there was in a lot of misinformation around migration and mm. that's basically hate speech and they were getting quite affected by it. And we, we didn't realize that at first, uh, well, we, we actually realized it because they told us, but from that point on, we established uh, some measures to protect I'm sorry. Each time someone calls me, everything moves in my computer. Um, we we uh, set up some rules on how to answer the WhatsApp service, right? Like, so you will not be looking at the WhatsApp service for more than two hours in a row. If you come across a video, shut the audio out after the first watch. 
because if you watch it with the audio, it will affect you much more. If, if it affects you in any way, if it's making you upset or if it's making you sad, don't worry, send it to one of the coordinators and we'll find someone else to watch it. And you won't have like those sort of stuff. But I think, I actually think that some of the ideas, we got them from, from Boom's editor because they had similar situations with their WhatsApp service. And it was, I mean, it was good because some of them were getting pretty affected by it. No, that's, thank you for that. That's, um, and is that working? Is that, are those measures yeah. reducing the emotional toll? On this yeah, stuff? yeah, I, I think they are at least, like they, the newsroom valued that uh, we put that forward. And another thing that we've done on this, pandemic because we have so many people working from home and the WhatsApp needs to be revised anyways. And maybe you don't have someone next to you when you're working from home to, to talk about something that just upset you. That was another one of the recommendations. We asked them to call us if they needed it. And we gave them a, um, a helpline for journalists. I, I, there, there are these South American girls that usually run a helpline for journalists under harassment yeah. on, on, on wars and difficult situations. And they changed the way in, they, in which they were running it to address people like journalists working from home and feeling anxious about the pandemic and about, well, the data they were handling, right? Um, so we partnered with them and, and we made that number available to our newsroom just in case they needed to talk to someone in a more specialized way that they would do to me probably. Thank you. We're, we're running out of time, but good, just the question I asked um, just earlier, which was from Gisela Vallejo, which is, would you consider using kind of automated tools, in, integrating automated tools into your CRM to increase the amount of fact checking you can do? I mean, I think that automation so far has shown that it can help us mm -hmm. uh, divide some of the work and identified which work is similar etc 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 and we're working for example our, our chatbot in the end is actually an automation uh, linked to our api what i don't trust so much is um, uh, artificial intelligence put to uh, fact checking or, or at least to deciding whether something has to be fact checked or not like the results i've seen around that are not extremely encouraging and overall they need to take the information out of a public bucket somehow and that public bucket is twitter and again for spain twitter doesn't work as the public bucket thank you Clara, thank you so much for your honesty and um, comprehension and you know i'm so impressed with the service and i really hope that you know, long may you grow and continue. I asked so many questions about the emotional well-being of your staff because that's something we're doing a research project on, and we next week's seminar at Tuesday will be on the emotional well-being of journalists. Um, and with us, we'll have Professor Anthony Feinstein, who is a professor of psychiatry, who has done a lot of work on how big events like covering 9/11 and now the COVID-19 crisis affects journalists. So please do kind of join us for that as well. Um, in the meantime, thank you all very much for joining. You, you, we will share your slides and we will share some of the links that um, Eduardo, our head of comms, has put in the chat uh, screen as well. And thank you so much again for your time. Thank you very much for having me. Mm -hmm.